The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Lawfare Archive. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for October 31st, 2021. Last week, the Department of Defense, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Department of Homeland Security, and National Security Council released four distinct reports on the effects of climate change on national security. This weekend, world leaders are gathering for the G20 summit to address a variety of issues, and climate change is set to dominate discussion. For this week, I chose an episode from March 27, 2019, where Sue Biniaz talks about major international climate negotiations and how the Trump administration would impact international climate policy. Biniaz now serves as a member of the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Team under John Kerry. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 27, 2019. From 1989 to early 2017, Sue Biniaz was the lead climate lawyer and a climate negotiator at the State Department. She was also a key architect of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, a UN-negotiated agreement designed to mitigate global warming, which went into effect in November 2016. In June 2017, President Trump announced his intention to withdraw the U.S. from the agreement, however. Sue sat down with Lawfare's own Jack Goldsmith to talk about all of that, the whole history. They talked about the early days of U.S. and international climate action, how the Paris Agreement came into force, and the predecessor agreements that gave rise to it, how it was supposed to operate, and what impacts Trump's actions have had on international climate policy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 403, Sue Biniaz on the Trump administration and international climate policy. Before we get into the guts of international climate law, can you just briefly expand a little bit on your career in the State Department? Um, What did you do? You were there, I think, at the beginning of what I think of as modern international climate change law. You were there for the United Nations. What does UNFCC stand for? It's the UN Framework Convention. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. You were there. That's the foundational agreement. And you were there and negotiated, involved in negotiating that? Yes. So just describe a little bit more what you did in the State Department for your three decades. Well, um, when I first got there, it was 1984. I started out in diplomatic law, doing sort of privileges and immunities type work rotated through the Office for Middle Eastern Legal Issues. Then I spent about two and a half years being a lawyer on the space station negotiations. Uh, That was during the Reagan administration where we 
tried to get uh, Western Europe, Canada, and Japan to join us, NASA, in building an international space station that was going to be the counterpart to the Soviet Mir. Uh, ultimately, Russia ended up joining the space station after Soviet Union collapsed. So that was a very interesting um, legal experience. Uh, after that, I started working on environmental issues and law of the sea issues, which is, I think, how I met you initially. That included the acid rain agreement with Canada and the uh, Montreal Protocol on protection of the ozone layer and protection of the Arctic, the Antarctic Treaty System, science and technology cooperation, et cetera, et cetera. Then I rotated through the Office for European Affairs. When all, the, but all, during all this time, you were also doing climate stuff, right? Well, the climate stuff had just started at the point when I went to the Europe office. Okay. And it was actually, uh, even though the Soviet Union was falling apart, and that led to all kinds of interesting legal issues, I um, uh, was really sort of taken by this climate issue and kind of rotated back at that point to the office that did uh, oceans, environment, and science work, back to the climate negotiations. So that's how I ended up being the lawyer on the negotiation of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. I kind of got out of Europe, went back to climate, and then just kept my hand, no matter what job I was doing, kept my hand in the climate negotiations. Uh, and then when I became deputy legal advisor in the 2000s, maybe 2007, uh, that was one of my conditions, is that I would go up and work on other issues and supervise other offices, but I wanted to keep doing the climate work because I found it really interesting. So, yeah, I did end up being the lawyer um, through all the major agreements, Framework Convention, then the Kyoto Protocol, then the Copenhagen Accord, and then the Paris Agreement, and sort of all other climate-related issues, like each time it would come up in um, you know, the G7 context, the G20, the agreement that was done after the Paris Agreement in the International Civil Aviation Organization on offsetting greenhouse gas emissions from aviation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's amazing. And so you were there for the UNFCCC, which I think it was the beginning, and up mm -hmm. through Paris and beyond. Yeah. So I, I just want to quickly run through for the audience what these important treaties did, but with spending most of our time on Paris. So the United Nations Framework Convention, what that was a hugely important convention. I think the Senate consented to it almost unanimously, if not unanimously. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes, that was a framework convention, as, as you can tell from the title. Uh, which means that usually those agreements usually don't have that much content. The purpose is really to get countries together, to focus on an issue, to cooperate, to lay down some maybe general principles of um, of their cooperation. The This was in George Bush, the father's era. So this was late 80s, I think. Yeah. And yeah, it was like sort of 90 to 92. Okay. And the key U.S. objective there was not only to sort of support this kind of a convention, but to have no legally binding target in it. And uh, they staked a lot on it. They said that President Bush would not go to the Rio Earth Summit if there was a legally binding target on it. So they kind of played hardball on that particular issue. But what did it, but they were there for what did it do? What did it establish affirmatively? So it had general, general obligations in it to take action to mitigate climate change, to adapt to climate change. There were some very non-specified funding obligations for a list of uh, certain developed countries. And then again, the developed countries, which were called Annex One parties, had a non-binding emissions target. They were supposed to reduce their emissions to a particular level by the year 2000. Can we stop um, for a second? Let's just sure. explain to the readers what non-binding means. I'm going to take a crack at it and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. So an agreement 
the UNFCCC itself was an internet was a treaty under international yes. law and it was a binding international agreement. Right. But what you're talking about now about the emissions targets, and this is going to be important for the Paris Agreement, those were obligations that were undertaken that were non-binding under international law. So they right. were like political commitments. Is that yeah, right? Right. Well, there would be yeah, it would not be a violation of international law if you did not achieve the right. target okay. that was set forth in Great. in the convention. Um, and that was the position of the United States. Uh, other countries would have liked to have a legally binding target, but we sort of insisted, uh, got our way. And as you said, the Senate approved that unanimously. The only issue, you know, the, the Republicans wanted an assurance that the target wasn't binding, which we gave them. Uh, Democrats, some of them complained a bit that the agreement wasn't strong enough, but basically it right. went through. Right. But wasn't it still controversial that you even though it was non-binding, that, that the agreement picked out developed countries and imposed obligations on them and not on developed countries. Wasn't that the seed for the controversy for the next 10 or 15 years? Is that the right way to think about it? Not really, because okay. the Framework Convention, the differentiation, as we call it, was very mild in the Framework Convention. So you did have this list of Annex 1 parties, which was essentially the countries that at the time were in the OECD or former Soviet uh, republics and Eastern Europe, but the things that they had to do that were extra beyond what developing countries had to do were pretty minimal. They had a little bit more reporting, and then they had this non-binding emissions right. aim. So no one in the United States looked at that and said, oh, okay. my God, this is you know unfair differentiation. And can, can you just also say, because I think it's related to what happens in Paris, the UNFCCC, it also had reporting requirements and transparency requirements. Is that right? Yes. It did have reporting requirements. They were slightly different for, um, again, these Annex 1 parties versus non-Annex 1 parties in sort of the level of detail and the and the frequency, but everybody had to do some kind of, of reporting. What were they reporting on? They're reporting on their greenhouse gas emissions and then the um, actions that they were taking to, you know, address those emissions. And was that considered an important innovation at the time? Um. I wouldn't say so. I mean, it was considered important, yeah. but a lot of international environmental agreements have reporting requirements, okay. so it's pretty standard. So, so in sum, what did this agreement accomplish? I mean, what, why was it important? Well, it was the first agreement on the subject of climate change. So in that sense, it was a big deal because we're, this is back in 1992 where most countries, you know, most people were not thinking of this as a, uh, as a major issue. So it was really kind of getting ahead of the issue and right. the objective of the convention, interestingly, was to ensure that you avoided dangerous anthropogenic, meaning man-caused anthropogenic interference with the climate system. That was the objective. It wasn't quantified in any way, but that was a pretty, um, you know, bold objective. Yeah, and just to underscore something you said earlier, just because this may be dissonant with modern listeners, this was the Republican administration of George H. W. Bush who negotiated that negotiated this agreement, and it was unanimously agreed to by the Senate. Yes, and as I tell my students, it's kind of um, unusual now to think about a treaty whose name includes the words United Nations and climate change, right. that it would be unanimously approved. Right, exactly. Okay, so then what happens next? What's the next big important landmark, Kyoto, I think? Yes, and you know, let me just talk, tell you for a minute about the derivation of Kyoto. So I said that at the, for, the, for the moment... The United States got its way in terms of the non-binding emissions target, but the price the U.S. paid for that was there was a provision in the Framework Convention that said, you know, basically like, okay, you won for now, but we're going to revisit 
the adequacy of this provision. The, uh, the very first meeting after this treaty enters the into force. The non-binding course. provision. Yeah. The non-binding because there was provision. a desire to make it binding? Well, it didn't say we're going to revisit the non-binding nature. It just said we're going to review the adequacy of those provisions when we meet for the first time. So it left completely open like what aspect of those provisions might be deemed uh, adequate or inadequate. And so uh, after the agreement entered into force, the first meeting took place in, in Berlin. Angela Merkel was the environment minister, but actually chaired wow. the meeting. And, um, you know, some parties thought that the, those provisions were inadequate because they were not legally binding. Some of them said they were inadequate because the, the time frame of that emissions target was the year 2000. So they said, well, we need something to cover the post-2000 right. period. And some, including the United States, you won't be surprised to hear this, thought that those provisions were inadequate because they only covered Annex One parties. And the notion Developed was, country parties. yeah, um, and some of the major developing countries, including China and India, their emissions were, were growing. And so the U.S. position was that they, either Annex One should be expanded or those countries should be included in, uh, in some way. But... Um, Developing countries, not all of them, but the major ones kind of got together in, in Berlin and basically said, hell no, we're not agreeing to any new commitments. You know, and it had actually only been three years since um, the framework convention was, was concluded. And they basically got language into the Berlin mandate saying that there would be um, no new commitments for the, for, develop, for the, developing. For the developing countries, for the non-annex one. Yeah. Parties and that the developed countries or the Annex One parties would have um, didn't address the issue of, of bindingness, but it did say that they would have an economy-wide uh, target. So basically, was increasing the level of responsibility of the Annex One parties and making very clear that the level of responsibility of, of the non-Annex One parties was it could enhance, be enhanced a little bit, but basically it was, it was not going to change. Can we pause over this? Because I think it's important for people to understand, and I want to make sure I understand what the nature of the disagreement is here, because I think that this is an, what Paris helped to change. So as I understand it, the developing, the developed countries are the at the time the primary uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. And so they have done most of the polluting, and they're the ones that can afford, I assume, best afford to absorb the cost to reduce those emissions. On the other side, you have developing countries, China and India being the main ones. They're in a position where they're just starting to industrialize in a serious way, and they're telling the story that if they have to assume uh, serious obligations to reduce emissions, they're not going to be able to develop economically, and their claim is that's not fair vis-a-vis the developed countries because the developed countries have been doing all this polluting and rising up economically, and now they basically want to impose these strict obligations on countries that are developing that's going to keep them from achieving economic gains. Is that basically right? I think that, you know, roughly speaking, uh, yes, just to be a little bit more nuanced sure. about it. the There were no criteria in the Framework Convention when Annex 1 was developed other than, well, you're in the OECD, you're a former Soviet Republic, Mm -hmm. or you're in Eastern Europe. So it's not quite true that every single one of those countries was a major emitter. I mean, some of those countries were very small. No, but you have the United States over there. Yeah, Yeah. but roughly speaking, yes, that was the developed country group. And yeah, roughly speaking, that was the argument made by the large developing countries. Now, they did point to a principle, and I should mention it because it plays such a role 
in the history of the climate regime. Um, and I should have mentioned it when we were talking about the, the Framework Convention. When I said the Framework Convention set out general principles of cooperation, one of the principles it set out was the so-called principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. We call it CBDR for short, you know, common but differentiated. Okay, so the whole idea was, you know, we should all do, we have common responsibilities, but, but they're also differentiated. Right. But what that actually means is in the eye of the beholder, right? So can you explain each beholder, the developed country and the developing country? <laughs> yeah, I think the develop the developing country, or the, so the major developing countries would say, well, that's it's binary. You know, it's the ones who were in Annex 1 are the ones that have the greater responsibility sort of in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be, you know, one shade of that of that view. Some might say, well, maybe Annex 1 could evolve over time, but it's basically still binary, Annex 1, non-Annex right. 1. And others, like the United States, would say it's a continuum of responsibilities and capabilities. The agreement didn't spell out what is even meant by a responsibility. Capabilities is a little more... Understood. Was that a term yeah. to kind of bridge these differences? Was that the idea? Well, the, you know, back when we were negotiating the Framework Convention, it was sort of the price that the developing countries wanted, you know, that the price that needed to be paid for them to join a Framework Convention was a recognition that, you know, unlike, well, you know, from most of international law, parties to agreements have the same obligations. They're right. mostly agreements would say each party shall do right. X, Right. And they wanted to make clear that, you know, they were, not, they were not embarking on the creation of a new legal regime to address climate change where everybody was expected to do, to do the same thing. Right. But where people ended up differing was, you know, everybody agreed not everybody is expected to do the same thing. But it, whether that was sort of a longer continuum or in two rigid categories becomes the issue when we start, you know, down the, the Kyoto track. So does Kyoto next? Yes, because this Berlin mandate then leads to, uh, it was a mandate for the negotiation of what became the Kyoto Protocol, and um, the Kyoto Protocol ended up sort of consistent with that mandate, having you know legally binding targets for the Annex 1 parties, economy-wide, fairly stringent, and developing countries, you know, there was a little bit of enhancement of their existing commitments, but, but not, not much, okay? You know, on the domestic front... Towards the end of the negotiation of the Kyoto Protocol, the Senate, 95 to 0, adopted a resolution called the Byrd-Hagel Resolution. And that was... This is important. Can you talk about Yeah, that was Senator Byrd from West Virginia, a coal state. He was a Democrat, but from a coal state. And Senator Hagel from Nebraska uh, joined together and basically said, kind of issued a resolution that, um, you know, if you're legally clever, you can find some way to rationalize it with the with the Berlin Mandate, which is a fun exercise. But in essence, it was saying, don't even think about bringing home uh, to the Senate the thing that you're negotiating, because we don't really want to see an agreement that either, with targets that either harm the U.S. economy, when that one's at least debatable, right? But the other one's not debatable, because it said, don't bring home an agreement if the U.S., if it, if it mandates emissions commitments for the developed countries, including the United States, without commitments for developing countries in the same time frame. It did not say identical commitments, right. but in the same time frame. And but, it would have been impossible to argue that the Kyoto Protocol contained such commitments. But the bottom line was that the Bert Hagel Amendment, which I think was unanimously consented. Yeah, 95 to 0. 95 to 0 yeah. in the Senate, basically said, forget it. What you just did in Kyoto by distinguishing 
and again, I'm simplifying, development, developing countries and putting hard commitments on the developed and weaker commitments on the developing, we're not interested in that. That's not going to bring it to the Senate. Yeah, and, and, and Kyoto hadn't happened yet, right? This was, you know, a couple, right. six months or so before before Kyoto. Right. So we did make an attempt to kind of address the concern of the Senate by trying to get in a provision that arguably answered Bert Hegel and was also consistent with the Berlin Mandate, which was some kind of voluntary, you know, opt-in for developing countries where you could sort of take on a emissions commitment if you wanted to, and then you'd be eligible for uh, emissions trading with the Annex One parties, so there'd be some kind of incentive. And, you know, you could argue that it was consistent with the Berlin Mandate because mm-hmm. it was voluntary and therefore not not a commitment, et cetera, et cetera. But, but that didn't work. It didn't work. The big developing countries said, you know, Nice try, but you know that even though it's voluntary, you'll come after us the minute the ink is dry. So that didn't work. And so you ended up with a Kyoto protocol that basically didn't have commitments for developing countries. And the Clinton administration never sent it to the Senate. And then when the Bush administration came in, they basically... The George uh, W. Bush administration administration said, um, you know, citing Bert Hagel, but also probably even without Bert Hagel wouldn't have endorsed it, you know, said it was, it was, I think the language was something like fatally flawed and really didn't take steps to, to fix it in any way. So before we go to, to which I think is Copenhagen is next, before we go to that, let me just go back and ask, and this might be a stupid question, but the soft targets for the, in the UN, the UN FCCC, whatever it was, yeah, and that turned into harder targets in Kyoto, independent of whether, were those met? Did the United States, did we come close to meeting those? No. 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 Did the, Actually, other, did the other developed country come close to meeting those? No. The only two countries that did come close to meeting them were the UK and Germany, but on other grounds, because the UK shut down the coal mines and Germany absorbed East Germany and shut down, you know, coal So it wasn't the because they're... So it wasn't really climate-driven. Right, yeah. right. That seems to happen a lot in this area, that yeah. a lot of... The compliance ends up being driven by market factors or domestic political factors. We'll get to that. Yeah. Okay, so what happens next? Well, you know, you have maybe six years or so of the Bush administration where others are joining Kyoto, and uh, the Bush administration is engaged in various voluntary initiatives on this gas or that gas. But at the very end of the Bush administration, they decide at, at the White House, well, we really should do something more on climate change. So I think what happened, if I recall correctly, is that um, the president, President Bush, uh, when Angela Merkel was the head of Germany, was the chancellor already, and hosting the G7 or G8 or whatever it was in those days, um, I think he made a proposal to her that we set up a what we called a major economies meeting, uh, where if you took the top 15 countries, top 15 emitters in the world, including the EU, uh, you would have 80% of global emissions, population, and GDP. And those countries should get together and you know talk about what right. should happen on climate change. And uh, I believe Angela Merkel said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And you know we'll agree to that if you rejoin negotiations under the framework convention. So mm-hmm. what happened was we kind of went from That's zero to, to, uh, to 60 in, in a couple minutes. And what did those... Reopening, rejoining the UN FCCC negotiations looked like then at the end of the Bush administration. Well, exactly. That's that's a good question. So you you know, whereas the Berlin Mandate had you know set Annex One parties on a particular course and excluded non-Annex One parties, you needed a mandate for this 
uh, new set of negotiations. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, the world wanted the U.S. and China in whatever new right. thing was going to come along. Because China was part of Kyoto, but it had no real commitments. Right. The U.S. wasn't part of it, right? Uh, and the U.S., for its part, wanted to make sure that the mandate you know, was almost the opposite of the, of the Berlin mandate. It was very loose in terms of what the outcome could be and that it had developing countries not not excluded but included. So um, the Bush administration worked out a mandate. It was called the Bali Mandate. I would say it achieved um, U.S. objectives in the sense that even though there were like two separate paragraphs on Annex One parties versus non-Annex One parties, it wasn't, you know, we didn't completely move beyond the distinctions between those categories. Everybody was in and it very much left open the legal form of what uh, of what was to come, called it an agreed outcome, which could be, you know, absolutely anything. But what happened was about a year later, the Obama administration came in. So Bush never actually finished the, you know, negotiating something under the but he started uh, the Bali mandate. Obama but he, came in and finished. Yeah, it. and then Obama took that mandate and had to decide what to do with it. I think in order to distinguish the uh, Obama administration from the Bush administration, which had quite a bad reputation on on climate change, uh, the Obama administration said, "Let's do something legally binding." including with legally binding targets. I mean, at the time, the U.S. thought there was going to be a cap-and-trade law. I think it had pretty much already passed the House, and was, people thought it was going to pass the Senate. And I think in anticipation of, of that, the notion was, let's try to do something, some kind of legal instrument, but only if all the other major, not all developing countries, but the key was that the major economies have to be in. So in other words, try to do something akin to Kyoto, but get India and China and countries like that in it. In, well, into the Annex One? Part. I would say a much more flexible version. I and mean, they probably wouldn't have called it a version of Kyoto at all, but rather like a new animal. But here's what I meant by that. Yeah. I mean, legally binding. No, no, legally binding and targets in the agreement that were legally binding. Yeah. Not necessarily negotiated targets like Kyoto. You know, at Kyoto, you came in with your proposal and then you had to yeah. persuade everybody else. Here, but the key was they needed yeah. to get India and China on the other side of the limit. Yes, there probably would have been more flexibility, though, in terms of determining your own target. And for the U.S. part, probably would have, you know, whatever came out of U.S. law, they would have wanted to make that, you know, no no light between international commitment and the and U.S. law. Okay. But basically said, but everybody would have to be in. We're not bringing home another Kyoto Protocol. That doesn't make sense for the U.S. and it doesn't make sense for the rest of the world either. Right. Well, China gave a swift no to that, citing again this you know, not only the mandate, which they came up with some argument why the mandate did not allow that kind of outcome, which we completely disagreed with, but they also cited this, you know, common but differentiated responsibilities uh, principle, essentially arguing that Kyoto represented or reflected the meaning of CBDR, which was, of course, completely anathema to us because we had rejected the Kyoto Protocol right. precisely because it excluded developing countries. So to then say, the principle means that, you know, made no sense. Did they also cite us. did they also cite the UNFCCC? Didn't that wasn't what Obama was proposing somehow moving off of the UNFCCC? Well, that was their argument that it was yeah. moving off the principle from the convention, but basically as further elaborated in Got Kyoto, it. whereas we would have said, yeah, it's true that it was that Kyoto did <laughs> go in that direction, but Kyoto was right. fatally flawed, right? But so that anyway, just didn't work, right? So that proposal or gambit um, of the U.S. did not work, and the Danes were about to host this conference. They had already invited heads of state to Copenhagen, and it was a little bit of a scramble to figure out, uh oh, 
the U.S. is insisting on what we call legal symmetry or legal parallelism. In other words, we'll do it, but everybody has to be in it. And you've got the major developing countries saying, well, we're not doing anything binding. What was the source of that pressure? Was that because of the Senate? Was that because of American domestic politics? Was that something the Obama administration believed was fair? I would say all of the above. Uh, the Obama administration, I think, in part was heeding the Bird Hagel, you know, lessons from Bird Hagel, right, right. Uh, and also considered that the nature in the nature of a fair outcome. So I often cite this. You know, people tend to sometimes say that U.S. climate policy has been like very, very disjointed, and maybe that's true on the domestic front, but internationally, I don't think it has been yeah. that disjointed. Um, well, the continuity between there's a little bit of continuity between Bush and Obama, yep, and then Obama insisting on. This kind of uniform treaty is kind of consistent with what Bush thought as well. So there is more continuity than I thought there. Absolutely. So I think the Danes, you know, which had the responsibility to figure out or help figure out some kind of outcome for their for their conference, I think figure out, oh my God, the only way to square the circle is to have a non a thoroughly non legally binding outcome. Then the United States gets its legal symmetry in the sense of nobody's legally bound, mm-hmm. and China gets its no legal commitments for itself. This is so, the Danes that came up with this idea. Well, kind of That's in the consultation Paris, in it? the consult, you know, in consultation with parties, including the United States and China and others. There right. were, you know, many many rounds before right. Copenhagen to right. discuss okay. this. Okay. So you end up with the Copenhagen Accord, which you know many people say very negative things about. I think that's partly because of the expectations. You know, they they were not everybody was aware of what was going on behind behind the scenes in terms of trying to figure out an outcome that would work, and so there was a lot of anticipation that there would be a new legally binding treaty that would somehow include everybody. And so, you know, when heads of state came downstairs with this two-page Copenhagen Accord, people were kind of in shock. Like that's the Copenhagen Accord. Right. You've got to be kidding me. Right. If you go back and look at it, like I would argue, the seeds of Paris are are in there. You know, you've got all the major economies in. Everybody's taking on mitigation commitments. You have transparency regime in there for developed, well, two different ones for developed and developing countries, but everybody is part of a more elaborated transparency regime. It's the first time you have this objective from the framework convention of avoiding dangerous interference with the climate uh, reduced to an actual number so it's the first time that the world got together and said, what we mean by avoiding dangerous interference with the climate is keeping limiting the temperature increase of the world to below 2 degrees centigrade. The same number that ends up being used in Paris. Yeah. Paris goes a little bit... Paris says well below 2. Yeah. Uh, Copenhagen said right. below 2, but that was still... That's um, where the number started. That was when it, when it started. Exactly. You've got some financial, non-binding financial commitments in there that you know also carry forward and you see them kind of surrounding the Paris Agreement. So, you know, there's a lot in there that what year was is that? significant. 2009. And is that what leads to the launch of the preparation for Paris? Well, is that um, what happens next? <laughs> yeah. So we've gone through three things so far, right? Yeah. So we've gone through the framework convention, which is, you know, frameworky. Yeah. Then you've got Kyoto at one end of the spectrum right. in terms of kind of what we would call top-downedness. You know? And hard law. Yeah, in the hard sense law, of top-down top in the sense of, you know, negotiated targets, legally binding, full of international rules, uh, but also very differentiated, very bifurcated right. in the sense of, you know, two categories 
one with all the commitments, one with none of the commitments. Two categories being the, what, we're, what I'm calling roughly developed, the developed and countries developing. and the right. Exactly. Then Copenhagen is kind of at the other end of the spectrum in both ways, I suppose. You know, everybody's in. They're in in slightly different ways, but it's totally different from the Kyoto Protocol. All the major economies and probably 80 countries altogether take on emissions commitments of some sort under Copenhagen. So it's very inclusive. But in order to get it to be inclusive, you had to surrender. In order to get both the U.S. in and China in, you had to kind of surrender those top-down elements. So you have much more of it. You have a you know, non-binding. You come up with your own target. You don't negotiate it. And it has very few rules in it. By the way, isn't that what you just described as the absolute fundamental trade-off in all of this stuff? Yeah. Whether you're going to have hard targets top-down that are going to be legally binding, you're going to have a very hard time pulling that off because you're not going to be able to get everyone in. You're not going to be able to get the developing countries in. You're not going to be able to get the other countries to assume obligations. But you move to the other extreme in Copenhagen, which sounds like Paris, which is allow voluntariness, focus on getting everyone in, focus on transparency. It sounds like those are, that's been the fundamental movement. Yeah, well, that's the other end of the spectrum, but I would say, and we're going to get to Paris, which I think of sort of the Goldilocks, okay. what I call it, you know. Okay, okay. but, you know, Copenhagen is so devoid of rules that people think of it as you know, like the Wild West. I see, okay. Okay, so for example, everybody was asked to submit some kind of commitment by X date. A lot of countries did, but it took about a year of various workshops to figure out what had countries actually committed to? I mean, right. that right. you didn't have to be clear about what right. you were okay. committing to. So to a fault, I would say it was. Right. And part of that, it was like very rushed to get this two-page thing done. It was done at the head of state level, which is pretty much unheard of. They're sitting around a room negotiating right. among themselves, which, right. you know, never happens. Right. And so there wasn't really enough time to, you know, get into a bunch of rules, even if right. there had been political will to do so. Yeah, so you have these two extremes, and then... You know, it's it's kind of obvious what happens next or what had to happen, right? You've got um, the, a sort of political imperative, largely because the Kyoto, you know the Kyoto Protocol is going to come to an end. Okay, you have some countries saying we want more Kyoto or something sort of Kyoto-like, but we want everybody in it. Others saying, well, no, we're not going to join a Kyoto-like thing, but maybe we could accept more than what was in the Copenhagen Accords. So then you have your next mandate. And of course, that's a major issue because, you know, you're trying to kind of balance the forces that you just mentioned. Who is who is they? Who's leading this process? Is this really the Obama administration leading the global process? Is that fair? Well, I would say the EU in part was leading at the time because they, you know, were hanging out there essentially alone in the Kyoto Protocol at this point. They took on another commitment under the Kyoto Protocol under some pressure from the international community, but most of the other developed countries dropped out. So Canada dropped out, Japan, Russia, Australia, and the EU is essentially sitting there by itself. So they're In Kyoto. In Kyoto. Not, did they meet their Kyoto targets? I think they basically did. That's good. But they didn't want to do you know, more Kyoto post-2020 right. or something Kyoto-like. They wanted something like they would say, we want everyone under the same tent. Yep. Okay. So they have very, very strong motivation for um, if they're going to do this second commitment of the Kyoto Protocol, they had a lot of leverage actually at the time, right? Right. Because in in the context of saying yes to doing that, they said, okay, but after that, you know, we want an agreement that includes everybody. 
they wanted it to have some kind of what we ended up calling it was like legal force, yep. an agreed outcome with legal force was right. sort of the compromise, right? So it would have it would be more than Kyoto, but not ne- sorry, more than Copenhagen, but not necessarily like yeah. a full blown legal animal. And that, and that's what Paris ended up being. Well, that was yes, that was the mandate for for Paris on the legal issue, which was a, again, which was a Goldilocks, right? And on the issue of everybody being in. Basically, it says it would be applicable to all parties, which sounds tautological to a lawyer because, of, like, by definition, right. it's applicable to all parties. But politically, that it meant, you know, it's not applicable to just some parties, like the way the Berlin Mandate right. was. So, that, so those are the two key features, I would say, of the mandate for the negotiation of the of the Paris Agreement. And it was trying, you know, the issue was really like, how do you get the balance right uh, between what's binding, not binding, you know, top down, bottom up, and you know, the different, you know, it's going to apply to all parties, but exactly in what way are you going to continue to differentiate between two categories? Are you going to move beyond the categories? Are you going to change the categories? You know, what's going to happen? Okay, so can we walk through what Paris achieved? Are we ready to do that now? Uh, yeah. So what Paris does is um, it's a legal hybrid. So on the issue of agreed outcome with legal force, it ends up kind of dividing itself between substance and process or procedure. So basically the kind of the deal is that um, the more procedural aspects of the agreement are legally binding and the more substantive ones are not, meaning every party has to put in a contribution. Let's just go slowly through this. It's important. So basically you're saying, this is a generalization, but it's basically true. The procedural aspects of the agreement are legally binding. And can we just talk about what those are and then we'll move to the substantive ones. So what are the main so-called procedural requirements of the agreement. Yes. So each party has to put in, and this like overlaps with substance a bit, but each party has to, on a regular schedule, a regular basis, put in what is called a nationally determined contribution. And that is its essentially its mitigation, or let's call it emissions effort or emissions commitment. Um, right? So it's not that different from Copenhagen where everybody put in their emissions effort or commitment mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Okay. It's um, so you must put one in, but you don't have to, it's not a violation of the agreement. If you don't achieve your target, that gets to the substance. That gets to the substance. So you're obliged so, to have a nationally determined contribution. Yes, and you have to have one in place, right? You, you know, and publish it. You have to, yeah, hand it in. You have to right. submit it or communicate it or whatever the verb is. Right. You also have to report, periodically on a couple different things. I won't get into too many details, Mm but um, just like under the framework convention, you have to report on your emissions inventories. You know, how much CO2 did I emit? How much Mm -hmm. methane did I emit? And how am I doing in, you know, implementing and achieving my Mm -hmm. non-binding contribution, Mm -hmm. okay? So those are mandatory obligations. Uh, Essentially, they're all communication related. You know, here's my target. Here's how I'm doing in meeting my target. And just to be clear, but the agreement does not tell each nation what their target has to be. Absolutely. And that's determined by each nation. And I take it that the idea is through informal peer pressure, et cetera, each nation is going to try to force other nations to basically be as ambitious as they can. But basically, that's each each nation gets to decide. Each nation gets to decide. And you know, if you look at what happened on the road to Paris, before Paris was even finished, because it would have been hard to like come up with your target during the Paris conference. 
they actually called for parties to come forward with their intended nationally determined contributions before Paris. And that's what, so 185 countries, I think, came forward with them even before right. the Paris conference had started. And let me just say a little bit more about this nationally determined concept. You know, the Kyoto Protocol only involved, as, as we said, you know, the Annex One parties, right? And the EU was negotiating as a block. So that really was not that many countries, because if it's, if it's just the EU, you know, Russia, Canada, Japan, US, Australia, like really not too many countries. So it was manageable to sit around the table and come up with uh, what the targets were going to mm-hmm. be. And we'd already agreed that they would all be economy-wide targets, so there really wasn't that much variation in, in what they were going to be. Okay, then you go from that to 196 countries or whatever are, are mm-hmm. parties to the framework convention. It, it would be impossible to negotiate. Right. Like, like, how do you come up with targets? One way is you could negotiate them. But how exactly would you do that? Right. Not everybody's going to want to do the same thing. And there was no agreement that everyone would take on the same type of target. So, you know, that would be unwieldy. Another is you could um, derive them mathematically. And there were plenty of think tanks and, you know, people in the outside world coming up with formulas for, right. like, well... Two degree, you don't want to exceed two degrees. Therefore, there can can only be X amount of whatever greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So let's allocate what each country can do, and that's their target. But that would be politically completely unacceptable, right. even if you could agree on a formula, which you never could. To have okay. the economists determine what the formula is yeah. for everybody. Okay, right. so that was not going to work. So really, the only possible option was to have a nationally determined approach. Right, where each country comes up with their the, own. The obvious weakness thing. there for an outsider like yeah. me is every nation has an incentive to put in a small number. How did you yeah. avoid that from happening? Well, so this was a US idea, basically, this nationally determined approach. And, and let me say two things about it, and then I'll answer your question. One of the reasons we thought it was a decent idea, other than being really the worst idea possible, except for all the others, right. you know, Which like, I think is like true democracy, right? right? Right. We thought it would help answer. The other major issue in the negotiation, which was this differentiation mm-hmm. issue, because our thought was if you can each each party can determine its own emissions contribution, that could eliminate the need for any categories. Right. If you're all coming up with your own, why do you need Annex One, right. not Annex One? And for the U.S., it was absolutely critical that we move beyond the categories right. uh, in this agreement. By the way, are you allowed to put in a zero number? Does it have to be more than zero? More than zero, meaning... How small can the number be of a nationally nationally determined contribution? Does the, does the agreement... Well, it's, that? you know, a zero, in our world, zero just means you're going to uh, keep the same amount of emissions. Right. Zero percent reduction. Right. So is that, a, yeah. is, that an available, yeah. is that an available option? Did any nation go for that? Well, I, I can't point to one in particular, but yeah, but some of them have increased target, like your... Right restricting your emissions to less than they would otherwise be. So they're actually increasing. Right. So zero would be more stringent than... No, I'm so sorry. I got that backwards. Yeah. I meant... Were you... Forgive me. I said that the wrong way. Is it available under the agreement to submit a contribution that doesn't require you to change doing anything? You can submit whatever contribution you want. Okay. That's what I want to be clear about. Yeah. Okay. And as you said, you know, civil society and other parties can... Exert whatever kind of pressure they, right. they and want. I take it that happened. Um, that there was there was all sorts of pressure on each country through civil yeah. society, through other countries, and the like. To and I take it that the EU and the United States were, and maybe even China, I don't know, were doing some of the pressuring for the smaller nations. 
Well, um, the U.S. and the EU were certainly, I would say at the, at the stage when countries were putting in their intended NDCs, which was before Paris, our main goal was just getting countries to Everybody put something put in. in. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Secretary Kerry and President Obama made that top right. priority. The EU made it a top priority also. And right. um, as we'll probably talk about, the U.S. and China announced their targets right. together, yeah, right. which, which had a huge deal. sort right. of catal- catalyzing effect right. on the rest of the world. Okay, so nationally determined, it not only had the benefit of being the best of bad options, but it also was intended to move beyond the categories. Now, we did recognize that you didn't want to race to the bottom. And so one of the things that we added into our proposal, and in part to rectify a problem with Copenhagen, where I said that countries put in very unclear targets, mm-hmm. is we said that there should be a kind of a period, we called it a consultative period, and others called it other things. But the idea was you should have to put in your nationally determined contribution, you know, well before the Paris conference or in subsequent years, you know, well before the the meeting of the parties. And the idea there was, you know, if you can slip your target in in the middle of the night, it wouldn't have any of that sunshine effect right. where others could comment on it. But if you had to put it out several months in advance, you'd probably maybe want to put your best foot forward because right. you would know that others would comment. Right. So we included that as part of our proposal and that that is basically sort of uh, enshrined in the in the agreement. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way 
to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. So let's let's talk about substance now. Yeah. So the transparency, the publication, the need to to have a national commitment, those are all we're calling those procedural requirements and those are hard law requirements. Those are legal obligations. Then on the substance side, they're non-legally binding. And what are the main ones there? Well, the objective of the agreement, it's got three objectives. And you know, your objectives are usually not kind of considered. Right. I wouldn't call them non-binding, but they're also not binding. Yeah, you know, they're just aims. They're yeah, because they're they're collective, so they're non-binding in that sense. But they they are substantive. So the temperature goal is the sort of the, the one that most people talk about, and that's uh, the one that goes a notch beyond the Copenhagen Accord, and it says that the goal is to limit the temperature increase of the world by le- yeah by well below two degrees, and making efforts to limit it to one point five degrees. Guess what baseline? Pre-industrial levels. And what is that? I is that, is that is that not specified in the agreement? It's not specified in the agreement, but you know there are people who know. I okay. just I'm just so, not. So one that of that is the overall aim of this yeah. complicated agreement. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the overall. Thing. Well, that's one of the three aims. Okay. The second one has to do with enhancing kind of resilience and adaptation. The idea there is like we know that climate change is already happening, and even if you hit well below two degrees, there's going to be more warming or, or climate right. change. Therefore, you know, countries do need to do a better job of adapting to climate change or making themselves more resilient. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the third one relates to finance and mm-hmm. it basically says that finance flows should be made consistent with these with those objectives. So right. that's more of like a means means to an end. Uh, so those are the substantive objectives. And then as we talked about the substantive uh, national the substance of the nationally determined contributions are is not legally binding. So that means both the number that you come up with is, is not prescribed by the treaty, but also if you don't meet your nationally determined contribution, you're not in violation of international you're law. Not, is that the main idea? Yeah, you're not in violation of, of the agreement, yes. And why was that core, I think we've got the seeds of the answer already in what we talked about, why was that core obligation, which really goes to the heart of what we're, they're trying to accomplish in the agreement, why was that made legally non-binding? Yeah. Well, um, I shouldn't give the impression that all parties wanted it to be non-legally binding. Many right. countries did want it to be right. legally binding. The EU wanted it to be legally binding because they wanted it to be more Kyoto-like. The island states and other kind of vulnerable countries thought these commitments would be taken more seriously if they were uh, legally binding. So it was really the maybe the U.S. and some of the larger developed developing countries that uh, like China and India, I think. Yeah, that wanted the targets non non legally binding. I think in the case of China and India, more for well, just like historic reasons under this regime. You know, ever since Kyoto Protocol, they didn't see themselves as taking on binding right. uh, climate commitments, at least not a, as a, as a substantive matter. Um, the U.S. also did not want to take on a legally uh, binding commitment for itself, and it also wanted China and India, you know, one of the major emitters in from the developing countries. So it didn't, it favored a non-binding target also to have a, you know, an inclusive agreement for its own part. You know, we would not have been in a position to have a legally binding target because we didn't have a 
economy-wide right. law. And there would have been, we don't have to get into the details of this, but there would have been a legal issue. Myself, I think you would have had a hard time doing a legally binding agreement without either getting new consent from the Senate or from Congress, and I don't think he could have done it by implementing the UNFCCC because it's an obligation that goes so far beyond that. So there would have been mm-hmm. constitutional yeah. issues. So, yeah, there would have been constitutional issues. I think you know, make the possible exception would be if the uh, U.S. commitment were, were like identical to whatever was in U.S. law. There's some precedent for uh, agreements like that. But here we weren't. We didn't have that situation, right. so exactly. we didn't even reach that issue, right? Didn't because that, right. Uh, you know, like because U.S. law underlying U.S. law didn't provide. We didn't for, have an economy wide right. target, right. Right? right? Which is all all the greenhouse gases. So uh, making this covered. So and one other point about non legally binding. We also had some experience from the Copenhagen Accord, um, where we thought countries would actually aspire higher if the targets were not binding. Because we did have some accounts from some developing countries saying, you know, if the targets had been binding, well, I don't even know if they would have joined at all, but said if they'd been binding, we would have had lower ambition. This way we were able to sort of be a little more ambitious and aspirational. Yeah, let me just let me try to repeat that to make it clear to the people who are listening. So the idea is if these are hard legally binding targets, we're going to be super careful and super cautious and risk averse by what we commit to and make sure we can commit to them and not leave room for error. But if if there are no international legal consequences from not meeting this, then we can be more ambitious and aggressive domestically and maybe through that process try to reach these more ambitious targets. So there's a mechanism, okay. an arguable mechanism, that making it non-legally binding would have yeah. made the uh, nationally determined contributions maybe high, more more ambitious than they otherwise would have been. Yeah. That that was one of our motivations. Um, you know, it's counterintuitive maybe because you tend to associate legally binding with more serious and more ambitious, and that can often be the case, right? Because some parties would say, well, we're only willing to do more if we know that the next guy is bound to do more because there's sort of a you know competitiveness angle. So but, this is a sidelight, but I mean, you're a longtime State Department lawyer, and I teach international law. But for people coming to this for the first time. The idea that the a term in an agreement would be legally binding or not legally binding in an agreement where there's not going to be an enforcement mechanism anyway, it's puzzling that you that one would ponder over whether these terms were legally binding under international law, which has no particular enforcement mechanism for this treaty, or non-legally binding. And yet, and it's actually hard to say what turns on that difference on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, as you're talking about, the nations take it seriously. They hesitate, independent of domestic constitutional reasons like the United States have, they hesitate to sign on to a binding terms, a binding agreement, if they think they can't meet it, because they do hesitate. to. Vi- they hesitate more to violate a legally binding agreement, even if there's not an enforcement mechanism. Yeah. Is that right? I, yeah, I think it's a combination of the international implications you know, as I tell my students, there's a distinction between whether something's legally binding and whether it's enforceable, right? It might be relevant to what you agree to, but right. they're distinct concepts. Right. And it has implications domestically, not just for the United States, but for many countries. If something's legally binding, That's true. even if the international consequences are no different from something non-binding, it could mean, you know, you have to get a law or right. go through a particular procedure. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... That's great. That's a great explanation. So what was the theory about how this was supposed to work? I mean, why was this going to, why were nations going to cooperate around this? Why were they going to 
have an incentive to meet their targets. What was the theory of enforcement of the treaty? Well, you know, I'm not sure that you could say there wasn't an agreed theory of enforcement. You know, the way these things are put together, it's slightly haphazard. Well, you know, what, what, but, how do you think it was yeah, supposed to work? I mean, but I think, you know, in, in general, right. I would say, you know, you have a long-term goal, a temperature goal. And right. let's, let's add in, you know, adaptation, resilience, and finance, but mostly the temperature goal. What you knew you could not achieve right away. Right. Everybody knew that the initial set of intended nationally determined contributions, although it was very impressive and successful in a sense that you got 185 right. targets before Paris even started and 190 something by the time it ended, which mm-hmm. no one would have imagined, right. I think, only a couple of years before. Everybody knew that those were not good enough. They, even by the best estimates, they would have led to something like 2.7 degrees of So they warming. wouldn't even have achieved the goals of... The Not agreement. as an initial matter, yeah, right. but that actually added kind of impetus to what was already the view of many countries, including the U.S. and the EU and others, you know, that this should be a long-term agreement and it should have one step, you know, maybe five-year periods where you have a some institutional machinery where, you know, everybody hands in their, their nationally determined contributions, they implement them. Then you have a global review of how the world is doing, you know, in terms of it, the implementation of the um, of the contributions in relation to the temperature goal. Everybody goes home and then puts in, you know, kind of updates there. Right. NBC. Now everybody knew like there's nothing automatic about this happening. Right. So yeah, it's a grand experiment in right. a way. But the idea was, you know, the combination of the sort of the machinery plus the transparency regime where you were held accountable in a sense. You know, it was non-binding, but there was also, you didn't just go home and do whatever you wanted and never have to say anything. You know, you did have to come forward and show how you're doing. And the notion was, you know, in a perfect world, countries would go home and implement their targets and then come back with, at least in a, a political expectation, more ambitious targets. And over time, you would eventually achieve the, the goal of the agreement. Now, you can attack that at every turn. You could say, like, well, you can bring in the lowest possible NBC because there are no requirements. You can go home and not implement it. You know, you can fail to report or you can report, but nothing really happens to you. Yeah, right. well, that is you know, all, absolutely all, is possible, all true. Right. You know, all I could hand you a perfect agreement that does the opposite of all of that. And you would have, like, three parties to the agreement. So, you know, we had to just... Do what we could do. Okay, this is a really important point, and I want to reiterate it because. So I was just about to go and give all the reasons why I'm skeptical that this cooperative arrangement is going to work, and I am skeptical. And yet, something you said earlier is really important here. It's always compared to what, and this was an important agreement for getting all the nations to sign on, to getting everyone to come up with national contributions, to get over this divide between developed and developing countries, and to get the transparency going and. So you're right. It's you can pick holes in each one of the processes. That's not going to work. Nations are going to act in their self-interest. They might or might not. That the transparency won't work because domestic politicians don't care about international shaming techniques and the like. But I take it that you were willing to accept all those risks for the benefits I just described, and also because there's no better alternative. Is that right? I think that's right. And when I read things, uh, you know, I, I read as everything I can get my hands on, I guess, about Paris Agreement because I'm interested what people think about it. And, you know, there are criticisms out there and they put forward different models, but I haven't seen a model that I thought was more workable. Right. So you do have people saying 
this is useless, worthless. It should have been legally binding completely, and all the targets should have been well, negotiated. Let's, let's just talk about that. That yeah. strikes me as completely infeasible. I mean, Kyoto didn't begin to work, and you're never going to get legally binding targets in a top-down way for every country in the world. So that strikes me as a complete non-starter. Do you agree with that? Yes. So what are the other alternatives? I wouldn't rule out in the future if this issue becomes more and more, right. you know, whatever, devastating. Right. You know, something people really want to, you know, yeah, maybe someday. I'm not talking about world. 5, 10, 15 yeah. years in the future. I'm talking about in 2015. Yeah. No, I don't see that happening. In fact, I think the Paris Agreement needs lots of help from beyond the Paris Agreement. So one thing I've been writing a little bit about is one way in which I think it's different from most environmental agreements is most environmental agreements, you, you kind of look at the terms, they're spelled out, countries go home and they implement them, and then, you know, they achieve their objective. And Paris just needs so much help from the outside world. You know, the, the commitments are not spelled out. Right. So countries need to feel politically, economically, whatever, in a right. position to increase their nationally determined contributions. You're going to have possible conflicts with the trade regime, you know, if, right. if countries get more and more ambitious, their measures could easily bump up against trade rules. So you're going to need some kind of accommodation there. You know, that's not happening, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I won't, I won't give you any more examples, but you get the idea. Okay, so, so I would defend this. I, I, if you just look at this coldly, it looks like it's hard to see how this cooperation is going to work. If you look at it against all the available alternatives, it looks a lot better because something might be achieved. There's a process in place, there are regular meetings, you have nations committing. Before we get to what Donald Trump did to this process when he became president, we have one last question and then we'll, we'll turn to Trump's impact. And that is the United States commitment, uh, the nationally determined contribution was, tell me if this is right, 26 to 28% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 compared to the 2005 baseline? Yes, exactly. And I understand that that was a pretty ambitious pledge that we were that we were going to have a hard time meeting if there had been a Hillary Clinton administration. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. People call it a stretch target, which right. we were also trying to get other countries to do. Right. Stretch. And this was part of you know if you stretch, then maybe there could be uh, political action to support it, and maybe civil society and states and corporations maybe you can put together interest groups that will actually end up achieving the stretch. And if you don't achieve the stretch, you're not violating the agreement. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Donald Trump wins the election in, in 2016. He is an opponent of the Paris Agreement. He said he's, he uses some metaphors like he's going to blow it up or something like that. And But no one knew what that meant. Uh, he comes into office and he had an array of options of what he might have done to act against the Paris Agreement. Can you just tell us what those options were? Sure. Um, I think the language he used on the campaign trail was that he was going to cancel Paris, which, you know, we know doesn't have really a legal right. meaning. So in some ways, I thought, well, that left some flexibility for the administration to define it um, how they want it. So I think there were essentially four um, legally available options and maybe some non-legally available options. But the four legally available options were to stay in the agreement with the Obama target that you just mentioned, 26 to 28%. And I think that was not very politically available because I think if you say you're going to cancel Paris, it seems hard to, I don't know how you would argue you would cancel Paris if you stay in with the Obama target, but you, you would have had to say it you, seems you changed your mind. Yeah, yeah you right. changed your mind. Okay. 
The second option is you would stay in and but change the target, which is you know a legally available option as the Paris Agreement is written. And that one I think you could have defended as canceling Paris because you could have explained it as the agreement's okay. The agreement's like a you know the bottle, and I don't like the the wine that's in the bottle. I'm going to pour it out and put in some some other wine. Can I just flesh that out so people understand? So that means we've got this 26 to 28 percent pledge, but I don't want to meet it. So what what would that have looked like exactly? Would that meant they changed the pledge? Yes. So um, because these are nationally determined contributions, mm-hmm. the agreement leaves open the possibility of changing your nationally determined contribution once you put it in. Again, you know, for some, the motivation there was that kind of like with the issue of non-legally binding targets, that if you have the ability to change the target, you might then aim higher. If right. you know you can't change right. your target for the duration, you may you might aim right. lower. So for some, that was the, that was the motivation. Although, um, if it's easy just to change the target when it gets hard, then it's it has kind of the opposite effect. Also, yeah, but you you know you you would you still have to suffer the political consequences right. of changing of lowering of lowering your target. You know, for me, it was important to allow a party to change its target in either either direction, more stringent or less stringent, because I was thinking of this agreement as a long term agreement, and I was right. thinking that you know there are going to be lots of changes at the in the politics of parties to this agreement, you know, with 196 countries, and let's say this agreement goes on for 50 years, right? It's not really realistic that every country is going to, you know, come in, like new new administrations are going to come in and love the and targets that, are going to change. you know, and, and if you have to right. tolerate a change here or there over the course of the lifetime of this agreement, yeah, of course, if every single country dumbs down its target constantly, well, this agreement falls apart, right? But if occasionally, you know, otherwise, it's always, as you said, against the alternative. The alternative is you, like the Kyoto alternatives were binary, okay? The the target was written in the agreement. So you had two choices, like a Canada joined the agreement, new administration comes in, has two choices, stay in or pull out. It didn't have the choice of modify the target, which might, you can debate it, but it might have been preferable to have the third way. Okay, is that so? That's the second option the Trump administration had. Yes. Does that include? We'll just leave that twenty-six to twenty-eight percent target, but we're going to ignore it and violate it. Or is that a different option? Is that in part of the second option, or is that a different option? Well, you know, you could either say that that's. I would have included that with the first option, where you stay in, oh, I see. and you keep the target, and that could have either included implementing it, not implementing it. Oh, or I see. The, so the first option included the possibility of. We're not going to touch this agreement or the target, the Obama commitments. We're just going to ignore them. We're going to pull out the regs. We're going to start getting I suppose. Pull going again. Yeah, I suppose. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. I what, didn't. I hadn't really thought thought that one through, but yes, I guess I think you're right. What's the next option? So then the third one was to pull out of Paris only and not the framework convention because obviously it was, uh, you know, you had two different options. <laughs> you have two different agreements you could have pulled out. Uh, and the fourth option is to pull out of Paris plus the Framework Convention. No one was arguing that the Framework Convention was bad or the U.S. needed to pull out on the merits, but the argument there was the timing. If you pull out of just the Paris Agreement, you have to be in it for three years before you can start right. the process. Now, that was not like people have asked me, oh, is that done for particular reasons? No, it, that was just standard. That was the Kyoto Withdrawal Clause. That was the Framework Convention Withdrawal Clause. 
the Agree of Paris Agreement wasn't even supposed to enter into force until 2020, until the last second. And so it had nothing to do with, let me know. Let me clarify that yeah. for people listening. So Trump announces his withdrawal, but he's, without getting into the details of the treaty, technically under international law to act in, in accordance with the withdrawal, the withdrawal clause under the agreement, the withdrawal can't be effective until November of 2020. Right. He can't, tr- he can't trigger the withdrawal process until, until November. November 4th, 2019, right. three years after the U.S. Right. joined, and then that becomes effective a year later, right. you know, ironically a day after the, right. the next election. But while he's still president. Yep. While he's still president, exactly, which I think is pretty key yeah. to why they picked that option. Um, and then the fourth option was, which would expedite or accelerate withdrawal from Paris, is if you pull out of the framework convention, he's able to do, for long, boring reasons, able to do that kind of right away. Uh, the, the UNFCCC allows a quicker term withdrawal. Well, no, it, it allows. It also allows only three years. But we've been a party right. since 1990. So effectively, you could withdraw so, from that. Yeah, and then there'd be a one-year lag. So if they had wanted to get out of Paris more quickly, so you know, like a year after they made the decision to withdraw from Paris, they could have pulled out of both. But probably as a compromise within the administration, you know, somebody decided, okay, well, we'll pull out of Paris, but we'll stay in. So let me give you my cynical interpretation. By not making it effective until right around the election, it's going to be a, a salient electoral issue. And they might have thought that would help them. I don't know why, because I'm not sure that works politically. But someone on the political side of the shop must have thought that through and said, because you're right, they could have just gotten rid of the whole thing much quicker if they had. And, and you would think, since they're so hostile to international uh, agreements in this area, that the UNFCCC withdrawal would have been the, the grander, broader way to just knock the whole thing out. And yet they yeah. didn't do that. Yeah. Well, I don't I, re- I don't really know about the, the reasoning. Um, you know, there was another option, which outside groups, and you know, I don't know which of these were considered. I was not in the administration anymore. And even if I were, I couldn't reveal. But I'll just right. name some of the options um, that I read about from from Outside groups, one was to send the agreement to the Senate, uh, the argument there being it should have gone to the Senate in the first place, but you'd be sending it to the Senate not the way you would normally send an agreement to the Senate, which is like to get the advice and consent of the Senate. You'd be sending it to get like, with some kind of message. I don't even know how I would have crafted this message when I was supervising the treaty office, but, right. you know, dear Senate, please take this up and disapprove it um, so that we would get like cover or something from the Legislative well, it would branch. have been a political act in yeah. which they would have put everyone on the spot in the Senate, and it would have vindicated Trump in some sense if they had gotten the right votes. Yeah, which is, I can see how that might be attractive to them. Right, but it's kind of the last thing probably the Senate would have. Wanted. Yeah, I'm sure they There's didn't. I'm sure they didn't want that, right? Yeah, a lot of senators did not want to touch this with a ten foot pole, and many were relieved that it was done as an executive agreement. I'm sure. Um, Despite complaining about it, they were happy not to have. Oh, it on absolutely, their plate, that's right? happened a lot in my in my I'm experience. Sure. Uh, and then the last option, would, you know, which I've also read about, was um, just announce that, like, basically we're out because we never joined. Make some kind of constitutional, well, you'd, you'd say that constitutionally we never could have joined because it should have gone to the Senate and it didn't. Uh, internationally, I don't think you'd have a leg to stand on because internationally the test of whether you were in a position to join an international agreement is governed by the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and it has a much different standard. It would have had to have been like manifest to the rest of the world that you didn't have the authority and you know there's no way you would convince anybody that I that completely was the agree case. that that's 
not available under international law. That was yeah. not an available argument. Right. So anyway, those were the options. So they chose withdrawing from Paris. They chose withdrawing from Paris. The argumentation was, um, you know, very bizarre. From my vantage point, having lived through all these agreements and having, you know, helped to craft what I thought would be, um, you know, a Republican agreement. And, and, and I was happy to see someone from the Bush administration actually be quoted in the press as calling it a Republican what agreement. What do you mean by that? Well, what you know, the Bush administration, when they finally rejoined the agreement and we did our Bali mandate, the idea was to have more flexibility in terms of what you were committing to. So I think that's the nationally determined contribution right. idea. They didn't want the targets to be legally binding. They're not legally binding. Right. And they wanted developing countries in. They're in. Right. Okay? They didn't have to have the same commitments. So, And they wanted strong transparency. It's exactly what we were arguing for. Now, the Bush administration might not like 26 to 28%. Okay, fix it then. Right. But uh, we did everything we were supposed to do. And I would argue, and I wrote an article to this effect, that it's also consistent with the Bert Hagel resolution, mm-hmm. which was intended to apply by the Senate, not just to the Kyoto Protocol, but any subsequent agreement. Right. So what I, the reason I wrote an article is I was thinking one day, uh, why didn't anyone raise Bert Hagel when they were analyzing Paris? Kind of strange, because that was the Senate's test. Um, I thought that the reason was because, precisely because the core obligation was non-binding. Isn't that what made it consistent with Bert Hagel? I mean, you could say Bert Hagel doesn't really apply, right? Because Bert Hagel was intended to apply to legal, you know, legally that, binding that's what I mean. commitments. Yeah. yeah. So in that sense, it's consistent. Yeah. But e- I think even if you said that Bert Hagel's ambiguous on that yeah. point, it still addresses both prongs of Bert Hagel in the sense that harm to the U.S. economy. Well. I think Democrats would argue 26 to 28 wouldn't be harmful to the economy. But even if you thought it was, the agreement allows you to change it to something that you think does not harm the economy. And then developing countries need to be in, and it doesn't. they don't have to be in with the same commitments. Done. So anyway, um, the arguments from the White House were not at all <laughs> accurate. You know, it was all about this is going like, to kill the U.S. economy. Um, didn't allow for the possibility of. In fact, I, you know, the arguments that they made made it sound like they had convinced themselves you couldn't change your target. Under you had an ironic situation where the people who were against the Paris Agreement were arguing that you could not change your target, and you had the NGOs arguing that you could change your target right. because they wanted the option of. So let me just yeah. clarify that. So you had the NGOs basically saying, "Don't take those targets in the agreement seriously. You're allowed to change them." And you had the the people that really liked the agreement were saying that. Well, they you know ideally they wouldn't have wanted them changed, but you know. No, I understand. But in this situation of the Trump administration, they're saying you don't have to be so extreme that the agreement allows you to change those targets. The Trump administration, which doesn't like the agreement, they don't want the op. They don't want want the talking about the option of changing the agreement because that makes the agreement seem too reasonable. So there are provisions, I'm not going to get into the weeds in this, but you know what I'm talking about. There are provisions in the agreement which contemplate that changes have to be more ambitious. But I take it that the reason that is not a hurdle to going in the other direction on the targets is because that's non-binding? Yeah, exactly. So that was written as sort of like a political expectation. And it basically says a party may at any time adjust its existing nationally determined contribution with a view to enhancing its level of ambition. And, you know, with a view to the sort of classic non-binding. They could have said, you know, provided it does not, uh, or provided it must or or shall or something like that. 
it seems to me that in terms of whether Paris is going to harm the U.S. economy, my view is that that is purely an argument about the domestic regulations. And you can have a fight about whether those regulations go too far or not and whether it makes economic sense. But I think one point that's important to understand is you could change those domestic regulations and still keep Paris in place. So they didn't, if they're really concerned about the elements of law that are going to be, make certain forms of um, energy production more expensive. Yeah, it's not have, Paris. It's not Paris. It's the yeah. domestic regs. In fact, you could take it one step further and say the targets aren't legally binding. So in what universe could they harm the U.S. economy? Right. Because at the point when they started to get, uh, you know, setting aside the domestic issue, right, at the point where the international commitment started to harm the U.S. economy, you were like free to stop. But, the, but the irony of that is, for again, for people who are new to this agreement, to have the, the NGO community saying, you don't have to take these targets seriously, it makes one wonder, again, unless you've had this complicated hour and 10 minute discussion that we've had, it makes one wonder what's the point of this thing, if you can just walk away from it and not, not suffer any legal consequences. Um, so what would you say to that? Well, I think we already basically covered that. That, you know, the agreement's better than the lack right. of an right. agreement and it does achieve some things. Again, I'm not going to like defend the agreement as the be-all and end-all, I think it's still an open question whether it's going to deliver. One thing I'm sort of sad about is that, uh, you know, if a, if a President Trump were was going to come along, um, it would have been better, you know, if he came along, you know, at least for climate purposes, later. you know, later, right yeah. after this regime got off the ground. So let's talk about that, because yeah. this is a very important point, and this gets to the impact of Trump's withdrawal and Trump's other actions on the international framework. And why, I think I know the answer, but why do you wish that Trump had come along in 20 years, say, instead of literally in the very earliest of years of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I mean, you've sort of answered your own question. I mean, the um, first of all, the rule book, we call it the rule book. I mean, several issues were not decided in Paris. They, they were, it called for guidelines to be further elaborated, which is pretty typical of environmental agreements, you don't figure out all the details uh, in the agreement itself. Sometimes they're too technical or sometimes there's just, they're not urgent or whatever. And, and Paris left several issues open. Now, it turned out that they were just resolved at the last conference of the parties um, in December uh, in Poland, but it didn't have to have worked out that way. It could have been some, somewhat disastrous, right, because of the U.S. position. So, um, you know, in a perfect world, those rules would have been kind of done, and we would have had the first iteration of the global stock take, which is the global review of how the agreement's doing, and the first case of everybody going home and, you know, with any luck, increasing the ambition of their of their targets, and that would have become sort of ingrained in the system, it would I have guess. Been the first act, and there would have been momentum from the There outset. would have been momentum, and everyone would have seen how it worked, and, you know, with any luck, it would have worked well. And that would have been sort of the mode of operation of this treaty, I that guess. That didn't happen. Right? And then 10 years later, if some aberration came along, you could say, like, this thing can withstand. This right. It's resilient. Right. You know? But it came along, like, right at the beginning. And so it was very unclear whether the rule book would come out okay. Nobody knew whether the U.S. position would change radically or whether everybody would resent the U.S. and like, you know, take opposite positions. The U.S. team did an excellent job. Um, this is important, I think, to expand on this because 
at one level and in certain parts of what happened in Poland, the United States was being antagonistic, and certainly at the presidential level, the president was antagonistic. But as I understand it, the U.S. delegation was there in the nitty-gritty negotiations about the rule book, basically taking the same position as the Obama administration. Is that right? Well, I think it's partly right. I think on the on the provisions that have nothing to do with like ambition, right? But have yeah. to do with transparency, sort of transparency, yeah. and you know, developing developing countries have yeah. to do the same. Those are sort of time honored U.S. positions. So yes, the positions were uh, pretty similar, and the people were the same, and there were like good personal relationships between those people and their their counterparts. So yes, I think that that all came out well, but that did not have to. Have have been the case. It was, right. a, you know, kind of a risky but, situation. But I would think that the, the bigger harm is not just that the rhetoric of the president. So I, I, I've, I've read that there are at least two big harms. One is if you've got the biggest, one of the biggest emitters in the world and the, formerly the leader of the agreement, suddenly trashing the agreement, withdrawing from the agreement, and trying to change domestic rights to increase the ability to emit greenhouse gases. That can't have a good effect on the dynamic of everyone else saying, you know, we're going to watch what everyone else is doing and we're going to kind of try to name and shame up ambition. It has to have a downward effect. And I've read that several countries have used the U.S. as an excuse to either not meet their pledges and the like. I take it that's an important... Absolutely. So I hadn't gotten to part two yet. I was just saying that the rule book... Okay, I'm sorry. You know, in in terms of like that aspect had, you know, thank God, come out. Okay, and that's kind of because it was under the radar screen, wasn't it? I, I think so. It was mostly technical, right? Okay, um, so and, get to the and and those positions had less less to do with sort of environmental ambition, right? And more to do with just like sort of typical U.S. positions. Right. Okay, but on the issue of climate ambition, right. you know, completely different story. I definitely agree with you. You know, I would say it's an on on the one hand, on the other hand story with more on the other hand. But on the one hand, so mm-hmm. like the things that are not terrible is like. Nobody has followed the U.S. lead in terms of actual withdrawal. A couple countries uh, have had candidates for president or prime minister saying that they should withdraw, and that's the case with Australia and Brazil. But then when they actually came into office, changed the position. So nobody's actually uh, withdrawn. In some cases, other countries have sort of doubled down on their support for the Paris. If you look at the G20 statements or the G7 statements, they've turned into G6 plus one, G19 plus one, you know, with almost making a point of saying we support really the Paris Agreement. Yeah. It's right. irreversible, blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay. Nobody has changed its nationally determined contribution. And I think in part, it's again, a, like a resistance thing to, to the U.S. But I think what I think is interesting is in some senses, this nationally determined approach is more resilient than Kyoto, right? Because Kyoto targets were negotiated in contemplation of what others were were doing. So in other words, if your target, you might take on a, a more stringent target because another country was taking on a more stringent target. And then they, if, if they pulled the rug out from under you, you would not know really how to react. And you might not be willing to implement some target if your counterpart wasn't implementing theirs. But uh, this NDC concept, you were picking a target that worked. It was nationally determined. It made sense for you. And it kind of continues to make sense for you, like notwithstanding what the United States decides to do. So so that's one extra advantage it it has turned out, I think, of the nationally determined approach. And then um, one other point on sort of 
why countries haven't followed the U.S. lead. Well, for China, it's been a great opportunity to show itself as a climate leader. You right. know, President Xi Jinping got up at Davos last year and basically said, you know, we're sticking with Paris. Um, Which so he has it's an interest become, in doing anyway. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's been a kind of a political opportunity for some countries to show that they're, you know, not the United States. So on the other hand, there's been a huge loss in the absence of U.S. leadership. I mean, everything that the U.S. did in the run-up to Paris no longer exists, and there's not really a, a substitute for the U.S. People have talked about, well, maybe the, a coalition of, I don't know, Canada and the EU and some of the islands. It, it doesn't add up to uh, what the U.S. Brought, brought or could bring to the table. And I think, you know, there's a secretary general of the U.N. is having a climate summit this year. There's a lot of expectation that countries will maybe enhance their uh, nationally determined contributions either this year or the, or next year. But uh, without the U.S. sort of rounding up countries like we would have done, you know, in the last administration, I think that's going to be difficult to achieve, not only because it's, it's sort of like the combination of the absence of a positive and the presence of a negative. And right. you put those two together, it's very difficult well to get that's it. Exactly what it is. And then you have the U.S. on top of it kind of affirmatively promoting, you know, fossil fuels and coal. And that actually resonates with some countries. And, you know, so they're they're not just being quiet on Paris or negative on Paris. They're kind of affirmatively arguing for policies that are kind of somewhat inconsistent with uh, bringing down temperature rise. And that I've also read, you might not, this might not be in your area of expertise, but I've also read that both the United States stopping its commitment, trying to reverse it and sending this signal to other countries has changed investment strategies in the private sector that might have hurried along climate change. That could be, uh, you know, I've heard kind of good, some good news about financial decision making because they sort of see where the which, the direction which the world is going and took Paris very much as a signal. Okay, keep going um, on your list, sorry. Yeah, and no, just one more point. Um, well, there are financial implications uh, in terms of U.S. contributions like to the Green Climate Fund. Didn't Trump not fulfill Obama's pledge? Yes, Obama pledged $3 billion. We gave one before he left office, and we did not or are not giving the other two. So right. that's, you know, it's hard for other countries domestically to argue like that they should make up for the money that the United States did not give. So, yeah, anyone in a foreign country who is against climate action or financial contributions can easily point to U.S. as like a, you know, as its uh, right. kind of excuse for doing less. Now, I just wanted to point out something important, which I think like a lot of the implications of the Trump administration have been mitigated by all the non-state actor efforts in the United States. They've really been huge. I mean, you've got the U.S. Climate Alliance, which is up to about 20 states. Mm -hmm. It's the third largest economy in the world, if you look at it Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, emissions, GDP. They are committed to the Paris Agreement and the Obama target and are kind of actively working. Now, they're not going to add up to 26 to 28%, but they're a good chunk of the way there. They're mitigating the adverse effects. Absolutely. And that has a foreign policy effect. You also have the We Are Still In coalition, which is beyond just states, it includes cities and people. Corporations, and too. Corporations, universities. And, you know, they're also committed to the, uh, the agreement and the target and I think it demonstrates to the rest of the world, it's not only good from a climate point of view, since it's helping to reduce emissions, but it demonstrates to other countries that the U.S. is not monolithic on right. this issue. And I think that has helped. It's been a counter-talking point, let's say, right. for other countries to say, like, well, 
we, we can't just say that the U.S. isn't doing anything because there are constituent parts of the U.S. Right. that are doing a lot. And you can blame it on Trump. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so, you know, in terms of, like, what happens next, I think it's very unclear whether all of this is, is reversible. Um, and I think it, in part, depends on how long this administration stays in office. I, you know, from talking to other countries, there seems to be a sense that the agreement can weather the storm of a four-year uh, U.S. reversal. But, you know, if you get up to eight years, it might be more difficult. But let's talk about that, and maybe we can end on this. So let's assume just four years. The, as you said a moment ago, this is the outset of an agreement, and at a time when it's very important, when you're not making progress, your consumption is going backwards, I think it's fair to say. And whatever the impact is over four years, even having been mitigated, I think it has to be a negative impact on, on balance. I think there's a general, almost universal yeah. consensus on that. And that's a very important four-year period where it's a negative impact, including on third countries. So I just wonder, I mean, I'm sure someone can come in in four years, but can you reverse this thing? That seems, yeah. going back to... 2016, and especially against the baseline of what a Hillary Clinton presidency would have done, it seems like it's it's not the end of the Paris idea. Certainly, you can have a president that's committed to it in 2020 come in and try to rejoin and be vigorous again, but you're at a much different baseline four years later. That seems not great to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, I mean, you can reverse the technical, which is like, yeah, you can hand in an instrument of acceptance or whatever, um, but it doesn't, you know. The, from the atmosphere's point of view, they, don't, they probably care less. The atmosphere doesn't care whether we hand in a piece of paper. Right. They care what our emissions are. And, uh, well, to, to a certain extent, the non-state actor uh, efforts are relevant in that sense because they've been making up some of the difference. What's sad is that these years actually matter. I mean, if this were a 100-year issue, you might say, eh, four years, who cares? But, you know, you just had this IPCC report. I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just came out with their kind of evaluation of like what would it take to keep the world temperature rise below 1.5 and right. compared it to two degrees. And, you know, both of them are fairly devastating in terms of impacts. Yeah. Um, and to even come close to 1.5, the next 10 or 12 years are apparently just critical for right. taking transformational action. Right. And we're doing the exact opposite. We'd like four of those years, <laughs> we're taking the exact right. Kind of opposite. And so we're going to be in a position in four years, even in the best case scenario from a climate change perspective, of being in a bigger hole. Yeah, point. yeah. Because you didn't make progress during the important four years. Yeah. So it's not it's not a very pretty picture, but you know, people, you know, you don't want to end with pessimism, right? So you want to you hope that things will turn around at least to a certain extent. Thank you so much. That was great. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Sue Biniaz for coming on the show and Jack Goldsmith for providing the audio and doing the interview. If you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to share the Lawfare podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. You can also now purchase Lawfare swag at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.